Matthew chapter 20, beginning to read at verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death, and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You do not know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be, become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. Thanks, John. Well, good morning. Please do uh, keep Matthew's gospel open in front of you. I'm Joe, uh, if we haven't met yet. And uh, let me lead us in prayer again as we come to God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that our time together now would lift high the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we see him afresh, please would you expose the sin in our hearts. Please would you comfort us with his compassion. And please would you lead us to follow in his way. Amen. Well, do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? Do you want to achieve something in this life? What are you ambitious for? Now, I ask that because the passage in front of us this morning is all about this idea of greatness. And in the middle, verse 21, we hear two of Jesus' disciples speaking through their mother, basically saying to Jesus, can we be great, please? Can we be great, please? Now, if you've been listening to Matthew over the past few months with us at church, you'll probably be thinking, haven't we heard this kind of thing before? 
Hasn't Jesus already taught his disciples about the danger of grasping after greatness? You might think back to Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 18, verse 1, where the disciples ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You might remember Jesus calling a small child and saying to the disciples, if you want to be great, you need to be like this little child. You might think of the rich man who we've already heard about this morning, who had greatness in the eyes of the world, and yet who went away refusing to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Or you might think about the memory verse that we've already had this morning, the last will be first and the first will be last, something we've heard twice already in this section. And yet, here we are again with the same disciples revealing the same attitude. Lord, can we be great, please? Can we have the best seats in your kingdom? Can we have glory, please? And my assumption is, as we come to this passage, that if it takes so long for the disciples to learn this lesson about greatness, then it's going to take a long time to sink into my own heart and a long time to sink into yours as well. This glory-grabbing, self-serving, status-snatching attitude lurks in all of us. And the only cure, as we're going to see this morning, is Christ and his cross. He will teach us that true greatness is about serving others. Do you want to be great? Well, if so, then you need to be willing to serve. Let's begin uh, our time by thinking about the way that Jesus served in verses 17 to 19. Jesus chooses the cross. Now that question in chapter 18, verse 1, that I've already mentioned, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, could be answered very simply, couldn't it? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It's the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom every person owes their loyalty. He is the greatest. But how does Jesus prove his greatness? How does he turn the whole idea of greatness on its head? Well, he does so by walking in the way of the cross. Have a look with me at verse 17. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, this is the fourth clear prediction that Jesus makes in Matthew of his suffering and death in Jerusalem. 16 verse 21, 17 verse 12, 17 verse 22, and now here. And each time, Jesus takes his disciples aside and he speaks to them on their own. And the picture becomes clearer as we go through about what will happen to Jesus when he arrives in Jerusalem. Now, if you're used to reading the Gospels, and you've probably read verses like these before, Jesus predicting his death in Jerusalem. And if so, let me encourage you now not to tune out, because this will be the basis of all we'll see in these verses. What will Jesus, the King of God's kingdom, the greatest, what will he face in Jerusalem? Well, do you see that the first thing Jesus does is remind us of his identity? He doesn't say, I am going to be betrayed in Jerusalem. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, handed over in Jerusalem. That title, Son of Man, has been used or will be used 30 times in the Gospel of Matthew. It's a very significant description of who Jesus is. 
And just look on the screen with me at some of the things we've learned so far about the Son of Man. Chapter 9, verse 6. Let's see if we can build up a picture of what this Son of Man is like. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Chapter 12, verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Chapter 13, verse 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Chapter 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they've done. Chapter 19, verse 28, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Are you getting a picture with me of the Son of Man? He's a person with authority, with power, with dominion. He's the one who commands the angels of heaven. He's the one who has authority to judge. He's the one who will be enthroned in glory. And all of that matches up with what we read in the Old Testament about the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, uh, we read a prophecy about the Son of Man who is given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. And Jesus says, we're going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man, this glorious Lord of all, is going to be betrayed, mocked, flogged, and crucified. We can understand why Peter in chapter 16 said, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. There appears to be a huge disconnect, doesn't there, between the power of Jesus and the path that he is about to walk towards his death. So let's look more closely at what will happen to him in these verses. First of all, he's going to be betrayed to the religious leaders. And those religious leaders who have no authority to kill Jesus themselves will condemn him in their courts and then hand him over to the Gentiles, to the Romans. And you see in verse 19 that at the hands of the Gentiles, he will suffer shame and pain and death. He will suffer the shame of mocking We need to know that in this society, there is no fair treatment for people on death row. You're not going to get your favorite meal cooked for you before you go to your death. A huge part of the awfulness of crucifixion was the shame of it. Jesus is going to be publicly humiliated, stripped naked, hung on a cross to die, scorned by all who see him. And in this society that is built on honor and shame, that is a type of death. As well as the shame, there'll be the pain of being flogged. This is a brutal whipping that could even lead to death for some people before they reached crucifixion. It was like a lion tearing at your flesh. He will be flogged. And after the mocking and the flogging, he will suffer death by crucifixion, the punishment reserved for the worst of criminals in the Roman world, a slow death by suffocation. Here is the path of the king. Here is the path of the glorious Son of Man, the path of the cross. The greatest in the kingdom will be treated as the scum of the earth. It does not get any lower, does it, than this. The pain, the shame, the death of crucifixion. But it is this very path, Jesus says, a path that he will willingly walk that will lead him into glory. See that at the end of verse 19. On the third day, he will be raised to life. God will vindicate him 
and he will be seen to be great. He will rise in glory. But before that crown will come the cross. So with that message ringing in our ears, let's turn to the disciples now in verses 20 to 28. Jesus chooses the cross, and the disciples want glory. Have a look at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Have they not heard what Jesus has just said? He's just told them about the path he is about to walk to his death in Jerusalem. And now, Lord, can we be great, please? Now, before we think about this request, let's try and work out the family dynamic that's going on in these verses. I wonder what you thought as you read it. So the sons of Zebedee, we know from earlier in Matthew, are James and John, two of the 12 disciples of Jesus. But we don't hear from them first, do we? We hear from their mother, Grant that my sons might have the best seats in your kingdom. Now, what do you think of uh, as you heard this read? Maybe you thought this is a classic case of a pushy mother wanting the best for her sons. The kind of mother who would hassle teachers for good grades and who do all she could to get her boys ahead. Is that what came to mind as you read these verses? Or maybe this is a case of pushy sons who push forward their mother to ask a question of Jesus that they are too embarrassed to ask. Which one of these came to mind for you? Well, I think it's clear from what we read next that this isn't just their mother trying to gain status for her sons while they look on sheepishly. I don't think that's what's going on. No, this is James and John wanting status for themselves. Jesus will talk directly to them in a moment because he knows that they are the ones who are behind this request. And we know that the disciples later on are angry, not with the mother, but with Um, James and John. So let me ask you, is there anything good in what they want? What do you reckon? Is there anything good in what they're asking for here? Let one of us sit at your right, the other at your left in your kingdom. Well, on the positive side, they know that Jesus is the king of the kingdom, don't they? It is the seats in your kingdom that they're after. And if you just turn uh, back a page with me to chapter 9, Uh, Sorry, chapter 19, verse 28, just the page before. Chapter 19, verse 28. You might remember there that Jesus says that those who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So if they're going to get some good seats anyway in the kingdom, why not try and get the best ones? Why not ask for the royal box, they wonder? But even though they've understood something about the glory of Jesus' kingdom, we know, don't we, that they've completely lost sight of the suffering that must come first. That is why Jesus responds in the way he does in verse 22, if you just go back to chapter 20, verse 22. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Every time in Matthew, when Jesus predicts his death, the disciples just completely miss the point. Chapter 16, Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, never, Lord. Chapter 17, I'm going to die, Jesus says. And the disciples say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, chapter 20, I'm going to die, Jesus says. Can we be great, please? They do not know 
what they're asking. Grasping for glory is not about what the kingdom of heaven is all about. It's not about status, it's about service. It's not about selfish ambition, it's about self-denial. It's about following the king who suffers the cross before he sits on the throne. And they don't get it. And so Jesus asks them this sobering question in verse 22. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Do you see, he focuses back on his suffering and death again. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Jesus will talk about the cup again in Matthew when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane later on in the Gospel. And this idea of the cup is a metaphor taken from the Old Testament which summarizes what will happen when Jesus dies. The language of the cup is used at various times to refer to the wrath and judgment of God. Let me just read you a few examples from the Old Testament. Job 21 verse 20 says, Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. Psalm 75 verse 8, In the hand of the Lord is a cup. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Isaiah 51 verse 17, Jerusalem has drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. Jesus is going to his death to drink that cup. His death will be a sacrificial death. He will bear the judgment of God in the place of his people. He will die for the sins of of the world. And he asked James and John, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? I don't know about you, but what comes next feels very unexpected to me. And there are two surprises, I think. The words, we can, and the words, you will. First surprise is those words, we can. We can, they answered. With confidence, James and John say, yeah, we can follow you in your path. We will go with you to Jerusalem. We will side with you in your death. And despite their boldness here, do they really know what they're signing up for? Not sure if they do. But the next surprise is the words, you will. Have a look at verse 23. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right and my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Do you find it surprising that they're told that they will drink the cup that Jesus is about to drink? Now, clearly, they cannot do what Jesus is about to do. They cannot die in the place of many. They cannot bear the sins of the world. But they will drink the same cup that Jesus is about to drink because they will follow in his path of suffering. There will be for them, as it was for Jesus, a cross before a crown. Just look at Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 on the screen. This comes after Jesus has risen and ascended into heaven. And we hear about James. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. That's what happened to James. And John uh, is probably the same John who wrote the book of Revelation, the one who was exiled to the island of Patmos and who died there. You will drink my cup, Jesus said. And they did. They suffered for his sake. But their request to sit at his right and his left is not for Jesus to grant. We're left with unanswered questions here, I think, aren't we? Who do these seats belong to? We don't know. The Father knows. But in any event, the Zebedee family have asked the wrong question of Jesus. Their question focuses on glory rather than on suffering. 
Their ambition is one of status rather than service. And that could not be more contrary to the path that Jesus is currently walking to Jerusalem. Now, it would have saved some embarrassment, wouldn't it, for the Zebedees if this conversation with Jesus had been kept private. As it is, we have it in our Bibles, and it's all over the world, so lots of people have read it. Um, And somehow, word gets around to the disciples at this time. And you can imagine, can't you, the whispered conversations and the shocked faces and the sideward glances at James and John. Did you hear what James and John have just asked of Jesus? Did you hear? Isn't it outrageous? And as word gets around, we see in verse 24 that they're not happy. Have a look at verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, are you feeling optimistic this morning about James and John? If you're feeling optimistic, uh, and sorry about the disciples, if you're feeling optimistic about them, then you might say, well, they're angry, aren't they? Because they know that James and John have asked the wrong question of Jesus. They're angry that James and John are still thinking in this way. But if you're feeling less optimistic, like I am, then you might think that their anger is arising from a different reason. I wonder if you've ever missed out on some concert tickets um, because they sell out too quickly, you know, waiting in a virtual queue or an actual queue and then finding out at the end that you're uh, too far behind in uh, the queue and you haven't got any tickets. That's what the disciples are angry about, isn't it? James and John have called shotgun. They've jumped in for the best seats in the kingdom. They've raced ahead into the royal box, so they think, and they've left the other disciples behind. And we know that's the real reason for their anger, because Jesus is now going to call the 12 together, all of the disciples, and teach them this lesson about greatness. It's not just James and John who need to learn this. All the disciples need to as well. So let's look at verse 25. Let's see what the disciples needed to learn again. Let's see what we need to learn again. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus shows us here a stark contrast in worldviews, doesn't he? Completely different ways of thinking, completely different set of values between the way of the world and the way of his kingdom. In verse 25, he talks about the way that things normally work in the world. The rulers of the Gentiles is just the rulers of the, of the nations, the rulers of the world. He's talking about just the way things are across our globe. People use their positions of power, and authority and influence to lord it over others. We see it as people go up in the political spheres and they feel as though they're more and more untouchable. And in some cases, they become more and more unreasonable with those they work with. We can see it in the corporate world as people abuse their positions of influence. We see it everywhere, don't we? In the school playground, in the classroom, in sports teams, and sadly, even in churches. As Leon Morris writes in his commentary, it is the way of the world to look for the highest possible place and to take delight in making full use of the authority that that place gives. We want to go up and we want others to go down. And into this context, we hear these words of Jesus. Verse 26, 
not so with you. Not so with you. The way for Christian disciples is the path of the king. Verse 26, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So Jesus does want us to learn about greatness here, doesn't he? He wants us to know what it means to be great. But do you see that true greatness in the eyes of Christ is totally different to the way of greatness in our world? Totally different set of values, completely different way of looking at at things. He turns the way of the world on its head. Just look at the language with me again. Whoever wants to become great must be your servant. True greatness is about serving. But then notice how the language changes um, in verse 27. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So we've gone from the great ones to now the very greatest, the first, and we've gone from servants down to slave. Do you see what Jesus is saying? If we're to move up in greatness, we must go down in humility. That's why the word servant is replaced with the word slave. Slaves have no social standing in this society. They had no rights of their own to stand on. They lived to serve other people. And so for Jesus, the scale of greatness corresponds to a life of service. If we live like this as Jesus' disciples, if we live valuing others above ourselves, forgetting ourselves, meeting the needs of others, we are the great ones in the kingdom of heaven. It changes where we look at for greatness in our world, doesn't it? It means we don't look in the Oval Office, but we look in the mini-grubs room and we see people serving, laying down their lives for other people. As we see any Christian lives to give rather than gain, we see greatness in the eyes of Jesus. And all around our church, we see people living this out. People who understand that the ways of the world should not be so among us. And why are we motivated to live like that? Well, it's because of verse 28. Have a look at verse 28 again. Just as the Son of Man, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Read. The king of the universe, the greatest person who ever lived, God himself, is this kind of king. He's a king with this kind of mindset. A king who took on the very nature of a servant, a king who knelt down and washed his disciples' feet, a king who said, my life for yours, as he died on the cross. That is our king. That is the one who is greatest in this universe, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That is why Christians delight to live for Jesus, because this is the kind of king we serve. He did not come to be served by us, but to serve us. And he did so by giving his life as a ransom for many. Now, this language at the end of verse 28, I think is meant to make us think about um, Isaiah 52 and 53, where we read of the suffering servant. He is, in the words of Isaiah, the one who will be crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our transgressions, and who will bear the sin of the many. Do you see, Jesus' death was not merely an example laid out for us to follow. His death was a ransom, a sacrifice that paid for our sins so that we, through faith in Jesus, might be brought into his eternal kingdom. We need to get a view of this Christ. We need to get a view of this King 
We need to get a view of his cross. And as we do, we simply cannot continue with our glory-grabbing, self-serving, status-snatching attitudes. Instead, we must share in the humility of the men that we encounter next in our story. So our third section, and more briefly, the blind men need mercy. In these final few verses, Matthew deliberately parallels what we've just been hearing in verses 20 to 28. We had the two sons of Zebedee asking to sit in glory. Now we have two blind men sitting on the roadside in Jericho. And as with the Zebedees, Jesus is interested in what they want. Have a look at verse 32 and a very similar question that Jesus asked there. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. And in their response, we're given a wonderful picture of genuine discipleship, marked not by pride, but by humility. Let's look again from verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Do you see that the sons of Zebedee came secretly to Jesus asking for glory? The blind men shout publicly to Jesus, pleading for mercy. And did you notice what they know about Jesus? Just imagine their cries being carried across the crowds. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Again and again, their voices ringing out, proclaiming this identity of Jesus. Son of David, son of David, son of David, have mercy on us. Now, Matthew 1, verse 1 on the screen, we were introduced to this title that is really important in Matthew's gospel. Right at the beginning of the gospel, this is the genealogy, the beginning of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And in chapter 12 of Matthew, people are left wondering whether Jesus really is this son of David by the way that Jesus acts. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? There was a hope that burns within the hearts of God's people that the son of David was coming. The one promised in places like 2 Samuel 7, who would rule on God's throne forever. And we read in Isaiah that when this son of David comes, when the king comes, the blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would walk. God's people would enjoy the rule of his king and joy and singing would be heard from Jerusalem once again. And so as we return to the roadside of Jericho, what are the blind men saying? Well, they're saying, son of David, we believe it's you. Son of David, have mercy on us. We know that you're the eternal king of God's kingdom. And despite the rebuke of the crowds, Jesus stops, calls them and says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Let our eyes be opened. They know, don't they, that they don't deserve anything from Jesus. They have no claim on his kingdom. They have no right to demand glory like James and John did. No, they need mercy. Lord, open our eyes. Do what only the son of David can do. Let us see. And they find that the servant king is also a compassionate king. Have a look at verse 34. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes Immediately they received their sight 
and followed him. What do the disciples want from Jesus? Glory. What do the blind men need from Jesus? Mercy. And if you too realize that Jesus is traveling to the cross to pay the ransom for your sin, if you realize that he is going to drink the cup of God's wrath in our place, then the only response is this cry, isn't it? Lord, have mercy on me. Not give me glory, not give me status, but Lord, please show me mercy. And we see here that for every person who is willing to cry out to Jesus in that way, encounters a Christ who in his compassion will gladly grant that request. As we draw to a close, I want to try and bring together what we've been seeing from this passage. And I began by asking you, do you want to be great? Do you have ambitions for greatness? Well, Jesus has taught us very clearly that if we want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, the only kingdom that truly matters, then we need to be willing to serve. We've actually seen that true disciples won't really care about their own status. Instead, the basic orientation of their lives will be towards serving other people. Why? Because even the Son of Man did not come to be served. So let me ask you uh, to think about some questions with me as we conclude, just ways to reflect on what we've been hearing. There's so much we could think about. I hope it leads to lots of conversations. But here are a few questions we could ask ourselves as we think whether we're sharing in the mindset of Jesus. Firstly, are we willing to serve others when it's hard? Are we willing to serve others when it's hard? Serving others always costs us something, doesn't it? It costs us our time, costs us our physical energy, it can cost us our emotional energy, Cost us our leisure time, cost us our family time, it might cost us financially. We might be asked to serve in a role that we find hard or to serve people we find difficult or to serve at a time we find inconvenient, maybe to do all three at once. And when the opportunities to serve in costly ways come our way, do we lean in or do we pull back? Do we lose our lives in that service or do we try and hold on to our lives? So when we serve, isn't it, when we serve especially in costly ways, that we will grow in maturity in Christ. That's why as we look around at other Christians in our church, that the ones we consider great are the ones who consider themselves the least. They are the people who are humbly serving in the path of their humble servant king. Are we willing to serve others when it costs us and to keep doing that when it keeps costing us? Secondly, are we willing to serve in ways that we don't enjoy and that we don't find fulfilling? I was thinking about that this week as I stared at a job on my to-do list that I've been staring at for weeks. It's just something I, just, I don't like doing, I don't feel very good at, and I don't find fulfilling at all. You ever have jobs like that? But I know that it's a way I can serve other people. And so are we willing to get on and serve, even in those times when actually we just don't want to? Third, are we willing to serve in ways that no one will see? If you knew for certain that the way you're about to serve will go completely unnoticed by everyone around you, would you do it anyway? Will you do the hidden, humble jobs? 
Or will you only serve when, as one writer puts it, you can do those hidden, humble jobs in the limelight? There are many other questions we could ask ourselves, aren't there? Are we serving at all? Are we only serving certain people? Are we only serving at certain times? Are we only serving in convenient ways? Or are we following the path of the cross? But I think the most important question, and the one I want to leave us with this morning, is will you remember that Jesus Christ has served you? That is the key, surely, to all of our service. This is the way that we will keep going year after year, decade after decade, pouring out our lives for those around us, because we are people who have been served by the king. We have a king who is fittingly called the servant king, one who did not demand our lives, although he would have been perfectly right to do that, but who offered up his own. A king who knows the cost of serving others because it cost him everything. And so will you allow him to serve you as he shows you mercy through the cross? And now that you've been served, will you strive to serve in his way? Let me pray that we'd be doing that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that our world is ruled by the king we read of in this passage, a king who served and who gave his life as a ransom for many. Father, we ask that the values of our king would characterize us, the people of his kingdom. Father, you know each of our circumstances and our opportunities, you know our desires and our sins. Please help every one of us to take steps towards greatness by taking steps down in the way of Christ. May we gladly embrace this life of serving others just as Jesus embraced it for our sake. And we ask it in his name. Amen.